the pill really gave women the ability to turn off their fertility in order to wait to get pregnant. What egg freezing has done is it's given women the ability to delay their fertility and then turn it on when they are ready to use it. This is a societal shift. You probably haven't heard the term mature oocyte cryopreservation. That's the technical term for egg freezing. It's a tool that can be used to preserve a woman's fertility decades into the future. And more and more people are using egg freezing to build families. To put it as simply as possible, eggs are harvested from the ovaries, frozen without being fertilized, and then stored pretty much indefinitely. When a woman's ready, these frozen eggs can be thawed, they can be combined with sperm in a lab and implanted back into her uterus. To help us understand how egg freezing works and what to expect mentally and physically, I spoke with Dr. James Griffo. He's the director of NYU's Fertility Center, where the first baby born through the use of egg freezing was in July 2005. You'll also hear from Rachel Lehman Haupt, a writer who documented her entire egg freezing journey in the book, In Her Own Sweet Time, Egg Freezing and the New Frontiers of Family. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattuk, and you're listening to Health Discovered, a podcast from WebMD. When I was 31, I ended a relationship with a man at the same time, you know, saw that I was on the trajectory towards, you know, 35 and knowing that my fertility might start to decline, I, you know, I started kind of freaking out. And I think, you know, it's a very common thing now that women are freaking out about their fertility. This is not women's faults. A lot of times we're not in economic positions to have children until we're older. I've been arguing this forever and ever and ever, you know, more and more insurance needs to cover these kinds of things because this is a true reality of life now. Some of the more progressive companies, I mean, I think Facebook was one of the big, you know, things that Sheryl Sandberg did when she was running Facebook is, is declare, you know, egg freezing part of their health insurance plan. And, you know, I am not 100% sure that is the right answer. I don't feel like women should just drive, 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 lean into their career and freeze their eggs until, you know, they're in their mid-40s. What really needs to happen is that companies and the U.S. government needs to create better family care policies. And that's part of health equity as well. I ended up getting pregnant naturally um, to have my son at 42. I was incredibly lucky. I took a little bit of Clomid that was prescribed by NYU and conceived naturally and never used my frozen eggs. That was lucky because I know that not every woman is able to get pregnant naturally at 42. I'm not a young mother. Now, my son is about to go into fourth grade and I you know, was at a party with a group of moms and literally every single one of the moms at this party was in their early 50s because they had all had children older. It's just more and more common to have, you know, elementary school kids running around and to be in your 50s and talking about menopause symptoms. <laughs> but, you know, that's, right. a re- yeah. <laughs> that's a reality. <laughs> that's why I sort of say, you know, like, don't wait till your life is in the perfect place. 
if you're ready to have a kid, it, your life is never going to be in a perfect place. And if you have the resources and good job and, and social support, it doesn't necessarily need to be within, you know, the traditional idea of a nuclear family. IVF is in vitro fertilization, which is a process where we give a woman medications, gonadotropins, by injection for about two weeks, stimulate their ovaries, watch them produce follicles. And, you know, in a normal cycle, a woman recruits 500 eggs to ovulate one good egg. And in an IVF cycle, um, what happens is these medicines allow us to recruit more than one egg. And, you know, sometimes between 10 and 20. As we monitor, we can see the follicles develop and at the appropriate time we trigger them and then recover the eggs. And now the eggs are in the lab. And in an IVF cycle, we fertilize those eggs, make embryos and grow them actually to blastocyst stage day five. And currently in our lab, we do pre-implantation genetic testing, which is something that I've been studying my whole career. And in fact, did the first successful United States born embryo biopsy pregnancy in 1992 when I was at Cornell. Egg freezing is, is similar, except that instead of fertilizing the eggs, we freeze them. And the reason we do that is if a woman doesn't want to get pregnant at the time, we can keep those eggs in the freezer. And now why would we want to do that? Because our biggest threat to reproduction these days is age. And when I started in this field in 1984, the average age at first birth was 19. Just recently came out that in the whole United States, that number had risen to 30. And it's my experience in the metropolitan areas, especially, that that number is probably a low estimate of reality. And, you know, certainly in New York and the patients I see, many women are now having babies in their late 30s, which has a lot of problems in the setting of what happens to eggs as women age. Women have about 7 million eggs in their ovaries when they're a fetus in mom's womb. When they're born, they have about 300,000 or actually a million. When they hit puberty, they have 300,000. And then every month, you recruit about 500 eggs and waste most of them and ovulate maybe one and rarely two. Natural incidence of twins is 2%, by the way. But usually ovulate only one egg. And by the time you're 40, you're down to 14,000 eggs. And you know, it's not so much the number that's the problem. It's what happens to those eggs and the quality of them. And also the ability of that egg to you know, kick out half the chromosomes. Remember meiosis from way back when where a 46 chromosome egg has to become a 23 chromosome egg. And that happens when you release it and it gets fertilized. That's when the, that process is completed. Therein lies the problem because when an egg does that, depending on the age of the egg, more and more of the embryos that result are chromosomally unhealthy. And that leads to an embryo that either doesn't get you pregnant or it gets you pregnant, but you miscarry, or rarely you get to 16 weeks pregnant and have an amniocentesis and get a bad phone call from your doctor about the health of your pregnancy, which, you know, at age 25, one in 1,250 women will have an amniocentesis that is, is bad. Um, at age 40, it's almost 2%. So something's clearly changing in women as they get older. And in fact, you know, natural conception rate at age 30 despite what they taught us in that high school sex ed class where they made it sound too easy to get pregnant. It can be. One time can do it, but that's not the usual. It's about a 10% chance per month in a 25-year-old fertile couple. In a 40-year-old couple, it's about 2%. And then the other factor, which also goes along with you know, chromosomally abnormal embryos, is 25-year-old women miscarry. 
15% of the time. And the majority of those are chromosomally unhealthy embryos. At age 40, the miscarriage rate is as high as 40%. So, you know, you put all those facts together and it basically says the barrier for age and fertility in women is that it's harder to get a euploid. That's a chromosomally healthy embryo. EU is the chemical signal for gold. Ploidy is the number of chromosomes. So that's the golden embryo that has the right stuff, so to speak. And you make fewer of those as you get older. It was pretty clear to me, even early in my career, that the norm was going to be seeing patients in their late 30s having their first baby. My first month as a resident at Cornell in 1984, I saw three women age 40, 41, and 39 have their first baby, which is quite remarkable. That trend was coming. So when I got to NYU, we actually worked on a method to try and fix old eggs by taking the nucleus of an older woman's egg and put it into a donor egg so that she could have her own genetic material. Because what were we doing with our older patients who couldn't get pregnant from IVF? We were using egg donation. And the problem with egg donation is not your egg. So we, we actually pioneered some studies, published some pretty significant papers, but then the FDA got confused and thought we were cloning because nuclear transfer was part of that, and they shut us down, and we could no longer try and fix old eggs, so we had to do something different. In 1999, we spent four years in the mouse lab freezing and thawing mouse eggs, making baby mice from frozen eggs, and showed that we could do it quite effectively, and then we perfected some of the technology in it to the point where we were confident we could get very good success rates in our patients. Despite that, since we didn't have many babies from it, we felt it would be really important to prove that we could actually do this. So we did something unique and, and no other clinic did this as well, which was we took patients who needed IVF. You know, many of them said, look, I don't have insurance. I can't afford it. What else can I do? We said, well, we have this clinical trial we're doing and you're eligible. We're going to pay for everything, your retrieval, your stimulation, your medication, your anesthesia, except we won't do IVF. We'll freeze your eggs. We'll wait. We'll thaw your eggs a few months later. We'll make embryos. We'll see how good we are at egg freezing, and you'll get a free cycle. Are you interested? In, and as a clinician scientist who recruits patients for studies for 30 years, I mean, it was the easiest recruit study I ever did. People were signing up left and right. And, and we did 23 free cycles in quite a short time period. Our, our first baby from frozen eggs was born out of that trial, and that will be 17 years ago uh, this July. Amazing child. Amazing parents, too. So in that trial, we did 23 free cycles in a group of women who were infertile, needing IVF. They were aged 27 to 37. The mean age was 32. And in that age group, you would expect a pregnancy rate of about 50% from IVF. And with egg freezing, we got a 57% success rate, which is the same number. It's not statistically higher, but it's good that it's higher. Um, but it, it, it was proof of concept that we could freeze eggs and that we could get very good pregnancy rates without harming the eggs. And the babies were healthy. And, you know, during that time, egg donation was being done by frozen eggs. And in our network of clinics, my egg bank, which does exclusively egg freezing of donor eggs, has over 6,000 babies from frozen thawed eggs. I mean, that technology is not the novel piece of it. What's novel about it is using on young women who are late 20s, early 30s, who are definitely going to delay childbearing, who know that there's a chance that if not for their first child, maybe their second or to complete their family, they will need assistance. Many women are now becoming very proactive about 
planning their their life. And in fact, it's funny, I, I went from being a fertility specialist to a family planner, because that's what I do now. It's like, let's think about how many babies you want. Let's look at the age curves. Let's see how this will play out. Here's your age now. Here's your ovarian reserve. And, you know, let's give you some data so you can make good decisions around that. And I think women are finding that very helpful, a little scary because, you know, everyone assumes it's going to be easy to build a family. You'll have your baby when you're ready or in control, which is how we're taught. And it's total fiction and untrue. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's so interesting listening to you because I had my first pregnancy when I was 31. I had a second baby at 33, and then I have a definite old egg baby at 40 um, that we just had during COVID. And um, so it's very interesting with just, you know, what you're saying um, about how hard it is and how different it is, how different it is physically for uh, someone to carry uh, a baby at these different ages uh, to term. So really interesting, the the kind of the thought behind sort of being a fertility specialist versus really thinking about helping people plan for their families. Are there other reasons that people come to you? Well, we, we often have a lot of cancer patients who are about to get chemotherapy, which will, you know, basically wipe out their remaining ovarian tissue or eggs. Um, and and that that's a group that we can put eggs in the freezer and when they're cured of their cancer, they then um, can have their fertility restored with their frozen frozen eggs. So that that's a group that it works very well in. And is there a difference in terms of, so we talked about the female partner and age, how that affects sort of fertility. What are some of the considerations around the male partner? You know, mother nature, when you think about it, you have to think about it in the context of, of history and evolution. So homo sapiens 300,000 years ago, when we first came on this earth, it's thought, you know, we didn't live very long. Um, and you know, we had to have two or three babies per couple in order to grow the population. And it, you didn't want it to be too efficient. Otherwise we'd starve to death or be eaten by the tiger because you couldn't move. (laughs) Um, and, and so, you know, it was never made to be an efficient process, just efficient enough to make the population grow, except that it was in a group of women who from age 14 to maybe 22 ovulated a hundred eggs in a lifetime to have those two or three babies before, you know, their end was uh, present. Um, and, and so it worked really well. What, what took a long time to happen is, I told you, in 1984, the average age of first birth was 19. So there hadn't been a real big change in age of, you know, people having babies. And now we've gone from 19 to 30. So we went from 14 to 19, five years in 300,000 years. And in the last 30 years, we went from 19 to 30. So we went in more than double the number of years. And, and you know, peak fertility in women is 25. So um, it, it's, it's become now a problem because we are below zero population growth. I don't think the species is threatened. We're not going to become extinct. But I think, you know, if the trend continues that, you know, 30 soon becomes 35, to 40, then we're going to need some fertility promoting or preservation techniques in order to keep enough of us around to keep the population at least stable. Um, So so it's becoming almost a social problem. And and look, it's a good thing to have children when you're older for a lot of reasons. Um, and, And I think socially, there's so many 
influences that make us do that. We take longer to find a partner. We have careers. Women are in the workforce full-time. They, they know having a baby early in a career can, can slow it down. Um, so they're making intentional choices to not have a baby right away. But then they're also facing the clock. And men don't because men have germ cells. Mother Nature made us differently. See, we were out in the field. We were killing the tiger, fi- killing the enemy, finding the food. And when we showed up, Mother Nature always wanted us ready. So we always had to be ready. So we always had to have fresh sperm. So Mother Nature gave us germ cells and we're making fresh sperm all the time. And so age doesn't affect us. Whereas women, pretty much age 44, you won't find this in any textbook, but just spend 30 years sitting with me. It's pretty much age 44, natural conception can happen. It's so rare, it's almost reportable. (laughs) I mean, you hear about every single one. You know, in my 45 and older crowd who had a natural pregnancy that resulted in a baby, it just doesn't happen very often. It does happen because there's always an outlier, but it's pretty rare. So that's really interesting. So in terms of being able to produce the sperm, but what about in terms of risks for genetic conditions as you're older? DNA breaks, exposure to, you know, environmental things, radiation. Um, There is a slight increased risk of autism in men over the age of 55, but it's very slight and not that measurable. Um, Certainly there is continued fertility into the, you know, 60s, 70s. You know, we haven't really tested the 80s. There isn't much desire for that. But, you know, we've, we've had plenty of men who are in their 60s and 70s and, you know, pretty good fertility. Um, probably there's some changes that make it a little less efficient, but it's not dramatic. Whereas with women, you know, you try and do IVF with 45 year old eggs, you don't get many good embryos and you don't get many babies. You get some, but it's a very tiny number. Um, you know, it takes about 50 eggs for a 45 year old to find one good egg that makes a good embryo. So that's really interesting in terms of, so let's say you do the egg freezing or the frozen embryo when you're younger, in your 20s or 30s, but you don't get around to using them or you try to use them in your 40s and you're sort of maybe potentially perimenopausal. Non-issue because what, what it's the egg that's the problem in the perimenopause. Your uterus is fine. If you can have the right environment and a good embryo, you have the same pregnancy rate as a, as a 19-year-old. And so you can take a frozen thawed egg that sat in the freezer from 30 and now you're 45, you thaw those eggs and, you know, this is a part that's not so well understood. It takes a lot of eggs, even in a young woman, to make an embryo that's euploid, chromosomally healthy. And then only a fraction of those embryos, about 60, 65% of euploid embryos make a baby. So, you know, you need a lot more material. But if you think about it in the context of evolution, in your lifetime now, you ovulate 360 eggs to have your two or three babies. It's never designed to be that efficient, but we just don't have the thought process to, you know, like the average person who hasn't really thought about the biology doesn't think that way. You know, they think, oh, I'll just try and I'll get pregnant. It's not like that. You know, it takes a lot of eggs to make a healthy embryo, but um, as long as you have healthy embryos, then those embryos have a very high chance of success, but they also have other advantages. They reduce the risk of miscarriage. So if you have a 45-year-old woman who got pregnant with her 45-year-old egg, she has a 55% chance of miscarriage. If you took a 30-year-old egg, thought it, made an embryo that was chromosomally healthy and put it in her, that she has a 10% miscarriage rate and a 65% baby rate. 
Whereas the baby rate at 45 natural, natural conception is probably about one in a thousand or one in 800 or something incredibly low. So um, you, you overcome a lot of the aging problems by using young material that sat in a freezer because it doesn't age in the freezer. And that was one of the interesting things about our study. You know, we followed patients in this study. You know, we just presented our 15-year uh, paper of the clinical experience of thawing eggs and 600 women thawed eggs in, that, in this. And their mean age at freeze was 38, which is not optimal. Ideally, you'd be younger. But in the beginning, the only patients who did egg freezing, especially when it was experimental, were older women. Because they were kind of like, all right, I'm 38. I, I don't have a partner. I'm not ready to have a baby. What do I got to lose? I'm going to freeze some eggs. So that those were our patients. Now we're getting a much younger group. Now we're down to 34 as a mean age for many of the women freezing their eggs. But back then it was 38. And what we showed in that paper was that if a woman under the age of 38 had 20 eggs thawed, 70% of them had a baby. Um, we even showed that women who froze their eggs, I mean, we had 43-year-old women who froze eggs and got babies, not very efficiently, and it's not a, not a way to do it. Um, 40, 41, 42, we had many women, you know, in suboptimal years for freezing eggs in this trial because that we gave them a chance when they, you know, were heading towards egg donor as their only chance or ne never having a child. Um, but, you know, women under the age of, of 38 with 20 eggs or more thawed, 70% had a baby. What, what do you, what's that data going to be when, they're, when that mean age is 34? It's going to be better. And in this study, many women had more than one baby. Some women had their whole family from their frozen eggs because that's how old they were when they got around to using them. Um, and, and some had a baby that was their second child that they wouldn't have had or their third child they wouldn't have had, um, but they had the eggs in the freezer and gave them a chance. So it, it's really changed the options and optionality for women. Um, it's not a panacea. It's not 100%. It's not going to work for everybody. It is you know, time-consuming and expensive, but it's also priceless. I mean, you see my infertile patients struggle. And, you know, if, if you are headed towards being 40 when you're going to start trying to get pregnant, more likely than not, you're going to need IVF. And if you try and do IVF with 40-year-old eggs and compare that to frozen 30-year-old eggs, you're going to have a better chance. If you have one batch of frozen eggs at 30, you're going to have one, a better chance than two or three batches of eggs at 40. So that that's kind of what what how this is playing out. Women are anticipating because they're being talked to by their, you know, their older colleagues who say, Hey, don't wait. Well, I can't, I can't have a baby now. I'm, I'm busy. Um, well then put your eggs in the freezer and that's, that's what's driving it. And how expensive is that? We charge for all the monitoring and getting the eggs and freezing the eggs is about $9,500. That price hasn't changed by, by the way, since 2008, what's gone up in cost are the medications, which can run you know, four to $5,000. They used to be about $2,000. But, and then there's an anesthesia charge. So, you know, it's somewhere around thirteen dollars to $15,000 a cycle. But what's happened also, as more women are in the boardroom and, and managing companies and realizing if they want to attract top talent women, benefits matter. And so now what's happened is a lot of really high quality companies are realizing, I want to attract the best female workers. And so I'm going to give them benefits. So now there's these benefit packages that will cover egg freezing. 
and allow a woman who's worried about the clock to, you know, put some eggs in the freezer so that they can continue and then delay having a child because their career, that's the career choice that they're making. Uh, and so that's, that's really caught on. So a lot of women now have coverage. You mentioned the health equity sort of concerns earlier on so that you had in some of your early clinical trials, you were able to get folks that maybe couldn't have afforded it, but because, you know, it was a clinical trial, you enrolled them. How are there sort of programs like that that help women that may not have access to insurance or other things? No, that, no. I mean, no. it's it costs a fortune to do. I mean, we have 133 employees. We have a huge lab that runs 24/7 you know we it, it, it's the equipment the the malpractice insurance the egg the storage insurance i mean these things it, it costs a lot of money to do it well and do it right so that's what you that's what you pay for the other other option is though you end up 40 and now you we can't get you pregnant with your 40 year old eggs you're doing egg donor this costs less than egg donor and it's your egg and it's right. It's so interesting because I'm just thinking back to my own parents. So they did not think that they could. They struggled with infertility. They had me. I'm their oldest child after 14 years of of trying. And at that time, this wasn't really you know commonly available. So what is it? When should people start having this conversation? Um, how how many you know how how long after trying should they come to you? Well, it depends on their age. If they're uh, you know, in my view, if, if you've been trying three months and nothing's happened, or even if you're just thinking about getting pregnant, get an evaluation. There are things we can do pre-conception that are safety issues. We can now do a blood test for 511 recessive gene mutations and help you not have a child with a genetic problem by being proactive. Um, you really should do that before you try and get pregnant instead of finding out when you're pregnant that your baby has cystic fibrosis and have to make a really difficult decision. So, you know, I think Younger women can wait a little longer if they don't want to, you know, see a doc. But, you know, if you're over 35 and you're trying, three months goes by, you're not pregnant. It's not too early to make a, an you know, have an evaluation and get looked into and make sure that everything's functioning properly. Um, now what's happening is women, young women are having ovarian reserve testing done uh, to see how good is my FSH, my egg quality, how good is my AMH, how many eggs do I have? Although I have to tell you, that is a hazardous arena because, you know, it's not so predictive of what the outcome is. So patients who have like not such great ovarian reserve who are young may be relatively easily fertile at home in bed, but, you know, their, their ovaries will change. And so that's a kind of a tough, like, don't ask a question you don't want the answer to if you're 30 and you're not sure when you're going to have a baby and you get your ovarian reserve done. Now you got this test result and no one can tell you, does this mean you're going to be infertile sooner or not? It's not a, it's, it's not a good thing, but OBGYNs need to be informing women that, you know, your fertility will change with age and you need to be thoughtful about thinking, you know, about thinking about what your plan is, how you're going to master it, and what are you going to do to be preemptive and proactive to give yourself the best chance because one in six to one in eight women are infertile in, in the country. And the older you are, the more likely you are to be infertile on the basis of age. And oh, by the way, do you only want one child? Because you got to plan for that too. If you're going to start late, you're going to have less time and less ability to have the whole family. And, and so you need to be thinking about these things. Not that you can s solve the problem or know the answers, but if you wake up at 44 and realize that you had options you didn't think about, you're not very happy. 
Walk me through, someone comes to your office for a counseling session at the very beginning of the process. What are you talking to them about? What is your preconception counseling? And then I, I'll, I'll sort of then go into sort of what the process is like after, if they yeah, choose so, to go I forward. Mean, patients come, come to our center because they know they're interested in, in freezing their eggs. And I have them do their ovarian reserve testing before they come in and we talk about that. And then I talk about the science behind the age-related decline in fertility because they need to understand that biology. And it shows slides where you look at the number of eggs to get a good embryo and you look at the differences in ages and it helps them understand how difficult it can be uh, to build a family as, as you get older and why you miscarry more and why you get to 16 weeks and have a bad amnio more. And, and so, you know, we talked them through all of those things. And then, and then we talked to them about the pros and cons of egg freezing. Um, and, and then they decide whether or not they want to do it. We do further testing. We do ultrasounds and blood work. Um, we offer them the carrier screening for recessive genetic diseases, although that's only relevant when you're making embryos, but it's good to know. Um, and then, you know, if they decide to do it, the process is not that complicated, actually. It's about six visits, pretty streamlined visits. Um, they start on day two of a period. The reason being that's the best time to start using the gonadotropins to stimulate the ovary and ovary recruits the same 500 eggs it would anyway, except with these medicines, uh, more of them are, are available. So we watch with ultrasounds, you know, along the course of two weeks, the patient comes in and we check blood tests and ultrasound. We watch their ovaries produce follicles and watch them grow to a size that w w at one point we'll say, hey, okay, you're day 12, you've taken 10 days of medicine, your ovaries look good, your estrogen levels are excellent. We're going to give you the trigger tonight at 11 o'clock, you're going to take your trigger. It's Monday night. Now, two, uh, Wednesday morning at 10 a.m., 35 hours later, we're going to put you to sleep and using a transvaginal ultrasound, no incisions, but through the vaginal wall, the ovary sits right behind it, and the vaginal wall is very thin. And with ultrasound, you can see those follicles. You stick the needle in, you drain the follicles, the eggs come with it. And 15 minutes later, the patient wakes up in recovery and usually say things like, well, wow, when are you guys going to do this? Oh, hey, that medicine's pretty nice. Let me have some more. And then they say, hey, am I in recovery? Yeah, you're in recovery. Well, how many eggs did I get? Um, and then two hours later, they're home. And usually the next day, they, they go to work. So it's about a two-week process, six visits, a minor surgical component. Um, and then the eggs get frozen. Many women now are doing more than one cycle because what we learned from our trial, you know, our 15-year clinical experience publication is that patients who did more than one retrieval had a much better outcome, especially in terms of having more than one child from it. So egg number matters a lot, but cycle number matters more. And so we have all of that data now, and that's the beauty of this paper. Really, no one had published such a large series with clinical outcomes data so that you could look and ferret out, like, where do I fit in this group of patients? And what does it mean for me in terms of decisions? How many eggs? How many retrievals? What can I expect? Is it, is it worth it for me? And so before that, all patient has had were these mathematical models based on very small series of babies born from frozen eggs. They turn out all to be incorrect because they're based on assumptions and assumptions can only take you so far. Actual data is science. And, and so we, we have that. 
And so we, we published the largest single center series of babies born from frozen thawed eggs in a fertility preservation population, which is unique to egg freezing for egg donation because that's a, a group of very young women. We're, we're talking about women in their 30s. Hmm. And in terms of the what women can expect during that process physically, what are some of the side effects of the medication or what should they be sort of paying attention to? I mean, you feel your ovaries get swollen. You're tired because it takes a lot of energy to make eggs. Um, you, you get bloated because your ovaries, instead of making one follicle, are making many and you feel it. The retrieval process, you're asleep for, so that's not painful. The recovery can be a little bit painful. And some patients, they can get a little hyper-stimulated, um, although we have much better technology now to reduce the incidence of that. Sometimes they are crampy and sore and spend a few days in bed. It used to be they got so sick they got hospitalized. We rarely have that happen anymore. Um, sometimes their abdomen fills up with fluid and we, we drain the fluid and they, to, to get them better. But most of the time, you're just a little crampy and sore for a few days after the retrieval. You get your period you know, about a week or 10 days after the retrieval and you're back to normal. So you gain some weight, but it's water weight. It comes off as fast as it went on. Um, you know, some patients get emotionally labile. What I found is that the, the IVF patients have a harder time with it than the egg freeze patients because the IVF patients are patients who've struggled. They've had miscarriages. They've not gotten pregnant. They're feeling desperate and exposed and worried. What if this doesn't work? The egg freezers are a very different group of women. They're like, hey, I'm 31. I can do something about my worries about the clock. I can put some eggs in the freezer. They're, they're much more positive. They feel good that they're able to take an action because we like to take action as, you know, it's just culturally who we are. We like to be able to pre prevent problems and be participating in that. And so it's a way you can act out your current fertility and preserve it for the future, knowing that in the future, it's not going to be as good. And so, you know, the patient's, Actually, most of them say they thought the process wasn't as bad as they had read on the web, but um, it's not a walk in the park, but it's also, most patients say, I thought it was going to be much worse. It really wasn't that bad so, to the point where many of them say, you know what? It wasn't so bad. I want to get more. I want a better chance. And they do another cycle. As a primary care doc, you know, I think that a lot of what you've talked about, so the physical symptoms, but then also sort of the mental health sort of component to it is so important and so key. And I think it's really interesting thinking about it as different groups of people. So the people that are doing the, you know, the egg freezing much more, it's more proactive. It's almost like a preventive strategy for fu potential future problems, um, as opposed to the IVF population where they're really potentially more vulnerable, as you said. So what kind of, do you have services or, or things that you offer to, to folks to, to sort of address the mental health component as they're going through this journey? Yes, we have, we have psychologists on staff. And to be quite honest, 30 years of doing this, I, I'm a pretty competent uh, fertility psychologist just because I've seen so much and learned so much from, from patients and help them frame things and think about things in a much more positive way than they're inclined to otherwise. But um, yeah, there's lots of... Uh, you know, support services we have on our staff, psychologists, but we also have outside referrals for that as well. Um, you know, there are also support groups of other women going through it uh, that, that find that camaraderie to be helpful. So patients have to find their own path and, and, and they do. It's not a fun process. In terms of, I'm really curious about this for the embryo banking across the country, what kind of ramifications do you think 
embry- will happen on embryo banking with the you know Supreme Court case with Roe v. Wade. Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't really think that, that that's going to affect us because we have nothing really to do with that debate. You know, you can never predict how someone thinks about something, but, you know, early on we were in the debate and people realized what we were doing and then they've kind of left us alone and I hope they continue to. Um, patients uh, want to build their families and, and you know, you have a young professional couple and they know they're not going to have a baby for later. I just talked to a couple an hour ago. She came to me at 31. She's 41 now and has two babies and has one more embryo and wants to have another. I, I have a patient who was an emergency room physician who had been trying for two years at 34 and she came and did one retrieval and had six healthy embryos. She's 45 now. She just sent me the baby picture of her fifth baby and she has one remaining embryo, which I'm not sure if she'll use it or not. She built her whole family because of this technology that she probably would not have had the last three babies that she had um, had she not done that. So, you know, I think it, it's just a family planning tool and I think patients and doctors need to manage that, that and how we do it. And, you know, the politicians and legislators need to stay in their lane and do what they do and, and solve some of the bigger problems we have in the country rather than tools that help patients build families. If they try and regulate and interfere, I, I think they're doing a disservice and a harm. And by the way, our future species depends on these technologies because as we get older and older, we will not thrive as a species if we don't have enough fertility to go around. And there won't be enough fertility to go around if you limit what can be done. Now, that's a great point. It, and that brings me sort of to technological, uh, technological advances with regard to how things have changed since you first started. Uh, you know, a re- uh, initially, a lot of people worried about multiples or, you know, it became high-risk pregnancies. What, what's, what is the outlook with that? By, by chromosomally testing embryos, what's called pre-implantation g- genetic testing for aneuploidy. That's been my whole research career, that and egg freezing. Um, and we even do that on the frozen thawed eggs. We, we, don't, we don't just put any embryo back. We want to find the ones that are going to make you a, a baby, not the ones that make you miscarry um, or the ones with a genetic problem that you don't want to carry. So we've eliminated triplets pretty much. I mean, they can still happen rarely. An embryo can split two ways and become a triplet. I've never seen it. I've read about it. Twins, we do single embryo transfer almost all the time now that we test embryos. We get 1% twin rate because an embryo can split uh, a percentage of the time. That then solves a lot of the problems of IVF. The miscarriages, the preterm deliveries, you know, the babies born prematurely with lifelong problems. You know, we've drastically reduced all of those things and gotten better because of the new technologies that we have. And mainly that has to do with understanding the chromosomal makeup of embryos and finding the ones that can make babies. Because what most people don't know is most embryos are chromosomally unhealthy and they don't make you pregnant. And you know what you do trying to get pregnant on your own is naturally at home in bed, one egg at a time, hope that you get the good egg that makes the good embryo that makes the baby. And in the process, lots of unhealthy embryos are made that either don't make you pregnant, they make you miscarry, or you get to 16 weeks at amnio and get bad news and have to make tough decisions. So we can reduce the risk of all of those things with this technology because we can do what nature does one egg at a time. We can take a batch of eggs and do it at one sitting in the lab and help people then have healthy babies. And then, you know, I did the first successful embryo biopsy in 1992, and I can almost anticipate your next question. The first question they asked me, I helped this woman who was a carrier for hemophilia. 
and her brother died of hemophilia. She knew her baby had a 25% risk. She knew I was doing these studies. She needed IVF anyway, and we were doing it for free. And she became the first volunteer to let us test an embryo and avoid putting back an embryo with hemophilia. And we, we didn't put back an embryo. We put back an embryo that didn't have hemophilia. And that, that baby is 30 years old now. And, you know, the first question the journalist asked me was, so now we're in the era of designer genes. That, that, that was coined in 1992. And we're like, no, wait a minute. We helped this woman have a healthy baby. We weren't designing genes. We weren't engineering people. We were helping people have healthy babies. That was how many years ago? 30 years ago? And the same topic comes up every time. I, t- I said then, it's not really going to happen. We don't know all the genes for all the things that people would select for. Not, and not only that, they're not single gene things. They're multifactorial. I don't think we're really ever going to have the technology to do what people are afraid that could be done that we don't have to do just because we can do these other things. So, I mean, the problem is the message becomes like, oh, this is ethical and problematic. And, and what happened is our patients suffered because the ability to develop and do new things was inhibited by the dialogue uh, and the mantra of designer babies and all that stuff. And, and so the regulators really made it hard for us to improve and get better. And it slowed us down. I probably slowed us down, you know, three to five fold in terms of what we actually accomplished. Intent is good in, the, in these arenas and people in this field, we want to help our patients have healthy families, healthy babies. We want to avoid human suffering. We want to limit disease where we can. Um, that's our focus. And that's what we're doing. You know, this idea that we're going to design genes is really an interesting concept, scientifically not possible currently, and I don't think it'll ever be done really. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's such a key and major point, I think, for managing expectations, too, of people is that there are certain things that are maybe on one gene that you can, uh, you know, check for, but there are so many other types of characteristics that are on multiple genes. So it's very hard to, you know say I want a blue-eyed baby or I want, you know, this height baby or et cetera. All of that is multifactorial and you can't really design a baby to meet those specifications. No, no, we're just helping people build families. It's very positive. And when you see them, like I have a third year resident whose mom and dad came to see me in 1992 and I put two embryos back then when we had none of this technology and it was a twin pregnancy and her and her twin sister fortunately had a good outcome and now she's our third year resident and is going to go into this specialty. And her sister is a superstar in another field. Amazing, amazing kid. So it's pretty amazing to see the fruits of our, our labor and see these children. And, and I've watched them develop and grow. And they're, they're amazing because they have parents who understand what a gift and a privilege it is to have a child. And so what happens to those children? They come, they come out and be these awesome human beings who are going to make the world better. So, you know, we're doing very positive things. And um, you know, these babies wouldn't be here had, had those parents not been willing to take the sacrifices and do the things that we had them do so that we could help them. So I, I think it's a story of really positivity, something that's really good for the earth, good for society, good for families, and good for the world. So I, I think we just need to keep focusing on, you know, doing things ethically and smart and, and have that one goal in mind, help people build healthy families. That's it. This is I, this has been so interesting. I so appreciate your time. And I was going to ask you, what is your favorite story? But I can't imagine anything beating the fact that you are currently training uh, 
babies that you helped a family care for and bring into the world. Yeah, that, that's an awesome story. There is one other awesome story. The woman wrote it herself, put it in the New York Times in the wedding section of all places, was a 39-year-old single uh, uh, only child. She was the daughter of two Holocaust survivors whose dad killed himself when she was 17. And her and her mom were pretty tight. And her mom's gynecologist who, who delivered this woman, she, you know, she kept seeing her mom's gynecologist throughout her fertile years. And he kept saying, you, you're going to have a baby someday. You got to do something about it. You're getting older. And at 39, he said to her, if you don't go see him this year, I'm not going to see you next year because you're not paying attention. And she sat down in my office and sat down in front of me and said, look, I don't ever want a baby. I'm never going to have a child. That's not really my interest, but I, I'm here to talk to you so that you can call Mike and say that I came to see you. So he'll see me next year. And I said, look, I'm not here to talk you into egg freezing. And I gave her the usual thing and talked about all the science. And she was fascinated by it. Called me up a week later, froze her eggs anyway. I called her up. I said, look, you're 39. You got 13 eggs. It's a 30% chance of a baby. You might consider doing more. And she said, yeah, I'm going to do another cycle. And then I never saw her till she was 45 with the guy not married. We thought her eggs. She had one good embryo. We put it back. Her baby's now about five. Um, I went to the wedding when they were three. It was the most amazing thing because when the baby was born, she sent me a picture of grandma who was 87 years old at the time. The woman who thought she would die never being a grandmother. And, mm. you know, I watched this woman every month I got my picture and I watched her get younger by the years. And I watched her smile get bigger by the, by the, by the picture. And, and then when I got invited to the wedding, when Colette, the baby, was three, I, I watched Grandma and Colette walk them down the aisle in this 50-person Brooklyn wedding at some restaurant. It was the most incredible, uh, amazing thing to see and watch and see how much of an impact it had on everybody in that, in that little wedding, but just that family and that, that mom and that daughter who had such an incredible life with a, you know, a really awful thing happened to them. I'm a blessed person to have those kind of uh, situations and be part of them and help people in those circumstances. So it's pretty amazing. Wow. Such a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is really such a beautiful story. I, th one last question in, in terms of how long you can store frozen eggs. So our study showed they don't degrade in the freezer. That was the beauty of this 15 year study. We showed whether they were frozen three years, the mean eight mean was about four. I think I have to look it up. Um, 4.2 years was the mean, but some were frozen much longer. And we did modeling, mathematical modeling. They don't age in the freezer. They had the same success rate, whether they were there for one year, two years, five years, 10 years. Wow. Dr. Griffo, this has been just such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for sharing such beautiful stories and so many important facts. Really appreciate your time. So ultimately, what does this mean for us? Here are my main takeaways. Egg freezing is now a really well-studied option for women who want to preserve their fertility in uncertain times. We also, though, have a really long way to go until this option is more equitably available to women and families with less financial means. Thanks so much to our guests for sharing their stories and their knowledge. Dr. James Griffo is the director of NYU Langone's Fertility Center. He's played a major role in developing tools that increase the number of successful pregnancies from fertility treatments. You can find out more info about Dr. Griffo and the NYU Langone Fertility Center at fertilityny.org. Thanks also to Rachel Lehman-Hopp. 
who authored the book in her own sweet time, Egg Freezing and the New Frontiers of Family. You can find her at lehmanhopped.com. Thanks for listening to Health Discovered, a podcast from WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Bata, and I want you to be healthy, happy, and here for our latest episodes. So follow us on your favorite podcast app. See you next time.